Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, a weekly podcast about what two pastors in New Mexico are learning in the trenches of church revitalization. I'm Matt Hensley, the pastor of Mayhill Baptist and managing editor for Lifeway Pastors. And I am Kyle Bierman, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Alamogordo and director of replanter development for the North American Mission Board. And we bring a combined 31 years of ministry experience to the table and still mess up time and time again. And this episode is sponsored by none other than Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, the crown jewel of Southern Baptist seminaries. We encourage you to visit swibbits.edu after the show to learn more about a historical seminary standing firmly on the word of God, developing passionate ambassadors of Jesus through the Great Commission and cooperating faithfully with Baptists across the globe. Yeah, as we've shared, these are exciting days on Seminary Hill, but this is also an exciting day for our show as we welcome the one and the only Dr. Matt Emerson to the show. So, uh, Matt Hensley, that means you're the only person on this call who's not a doctor. I'm signing off now because we're already talking about my pay grade. So, <laughs> uh, Now, Matt E., welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family, uh, what you do, and, and all that jazz. Yeah, well, thanks, guys, very much for having me. Uh, I was excited to, to come on. Uh, so I'm originally from Huntsville, Alabama, which is where Jesus is coming back. That's in Revelation 23, verse 1. Uh, and uh, I went to Auburn University, so i got to give a war eagle to all those people out there, especially people who didn't go to the University of Alabama but still root for them. Uh, I married my high school sweetheart, Alicia, and we have five daughters. They range from... 10 to 8 to 5 to twin three-year-olds. Wow. So we're busy, and I teach Bible and theology at Oklahoma Baptist University. I've been here since 2015. I taught at uh, California Baptist for four years before that. Awesome. I, I liked the uh, subtle shade that you threw across the entire state of <laughs> Alabama. Well, well done. Uh, we're grateful for our sponsorship with the CSB, which we blend, we believe, strikes a near perfect blend of readability and accuracy. And we encourage you to check out CS Bible after the show and specifically the new study Bible they have out, which our guests helped put together the CSB Ancient Faith Bible. Well, the Bible itself isn't our main topic, brother. Would you share what you contributed and why our listeners should check it out? Yeah, so I contributed an article on the Cappadocian Fathers to the uh, Ancient Faith Study Bible. They were uh, three men in the 4th century that were instrumental in helping the church articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa. And, uh, you know, the Study Bible has a number of articles on important figures out of church history, especially from the early church. But it also has running commentary in the in the notes by early church writers. And I think that's really important just to give us an idea that um, Christ has been leading his church for 2000 years, not just for 500 or for the last hundred or whatever he's been working in people's hearts since the beginning. And we can see what he was doing in other people's lives 2000 years ago, 1500 years ago, and, and benefit from what they said, just like we benefit from reading comments from um, Spurgeon or Herschel Hobbes or whoever. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle, before you ask this question, had you heard of any of those guys? Me? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm not worried. Impressed. <laughs> Go ahead, Kyle. So, my word. Yeah, Matt likes to joke that I did my uh, my demon uh, uh, paper on. Uh, that was a coloring That's book. That's a coloring but, book, yeah. 
Uh, all right. So obviously we pride ourselves on, on the foolishness to the show. Um, but for this one, um, we, we put our thinking caps on because this episode is, is going to bring in a topic that's, that's, uh, you know, quite a bit above our pay grade, uh, especially for, for Hensley. So, uh, Matt, what is the relationship of Baptists to the, the classical tradition or, or maybe what, what's called the great tradition? I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you were asking. Okay, got. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Go ahead, no, I was asking. I was asking Doctor Matt. I'm sorry. That's how I'll refer to him from now on. <laughs> I also don't know the answer to this question, uh, but my my best guess is that Baptists stand in relation to the to the tradition, um, just like any other Protestant group stands in relation to the tradition. That is, um, we we benefit from our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, um, but we also only appropriate and uh, believe what is in accordance with scripture. So if at any point the tradition departs from scripture, we follow scripture, not tradition. Um, and so, you know, that, that gives you, that's a very Protestant, also a very Baptist uh, thing to say. We, we trust our pastors to preach the word, but if they don't preach the word, we're going to tell them and we're going to tell them that, you know, um, they, they haven't preached it correctly. And we say the same thing to, uh, to, to the tradition that, Insofar as it follows the Bible, we're happy to use it as a guide and, and as an uh, authoritative guide. But when it departs from the Bible, the Bible wins every time. And so we call it Man, I was expecting a full-on trail of blood. <laughs> JJJ theory right there, man. I was I was, I was waiting for it. There. I was getting there, and you kept me out before I got there. Yeah, John. Lennon, Way to go, Kyle. He's called Baptist. I mean, that, that's got to be something, right? That, that has to mean something. And uh, we've—I'm sure you've heard it. We've all seen it on online, and and the the statement itself is a creed. But we we've heard plenty of times, no creed, but the Bible. Uh, where are we in relationship to the early church councils and creeds? I, I think that kind of follows what you just shared. Yeah. So the way that I put this to my classes is that creeds and confessions and councils um, are authoritative for us to the extent that they're faithful summaries of Scripture. When, when a line from a creed or a part of a confession or a judgment of a council departs from Scripture or is contrary to Scripture or does not accurately summarize Scripture, then again, the Bible wins every time. Now, uh, I would add to that, I mean, that, you know, I think anybody who's a Baptist would agree with that. I think uh, I, I would add to that though, th that there is a weight to the creeds and the first seven councils and our own Baptist confession of faith um, that first of all, it's it stood the test. Those things have stood the test of time um, in terms of the Baptist faith, the message that's a context in which we find ourselves. And so it's a very serious thing to say that the church um, at large, the universal church has erred in some way in what it's confessed for 2000 years. We need to be very careful before we jump to, I don't agree with this. The first time I read it, some other person that quoted one Bible verse also doesn't agree with it. Therefore I'm going to jettison or, or, you know, leave out this entire line of a creed. Um, so there's this, there's this balance. I think we have to walk between, the Protestant principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authoritative faith and practice. But on the other hand, realizing that we're not the first per first people to read the Bible, we're not the first people to write theology, and so there's a weight 
to something that the church has agreed on for 2000 years, 1500 years. Um, and, and we, as the, you know, one individual person shouldn't overturn an entire creedal line by ourselves. It would take a lot of um, time and exegesis and agreement among the church to do something like that. And so this is kind of a fine line to walk between um, recognizing Sola Scriptura, but also realizing that you're not the first person to interpret the Bible. Yeah. And I, that, that kind of reminds me of something in my, my preaching preparation that I'll, I'll write out my sermon and so forth, and I might come up with an explanation or an application or whatever. And then once I have some of that kind of ironed out, I go back to a commentary or a couple of commentaries. And, and if I've come up with something completely and totally different than what these faithful guys have done, that, that either I have struck gold and I, I'm about to write a book about this, or I probably need to maybe rethink how, how I got there and kind of walk that back just a little bit. Because there's there's a reason that maybe I ha- have erred at some point, and so I think in some sense that's what you're saying with the creeds that they can help us when we maybe see something that we don't like, like you shared in a first reading of it, that we can kind of think and walk that back instead of just jettisoning it and go, going all out. That we can go back and say, why, why did I get this? So I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I tell my hermeneutic students that if they're the first person to come up with a, a reading of a particular text, they're probably coming up with heresy uh, you know you, you don't you don't want to you don't want to come up with something brand new in the christian faith because we're confin- we're contending for the faith that's been delivered once and for all for the saints so and that's true that's true again not at the same level of scripture um, but if creeds and confessions and councils are faithful summaries of scripture then they have weight to them it's not the same weight as scripture but they still have weight to them that we need to be careful about trying to overturn just on our own individual judgment. Yeah. And I will, I will say from experience, if Matt Hensley comes up with an original idea in scripture, it is most <laughs> definitely heresy <laughs> and, and should be avoided at all costs. <laughs> Let me tell you about this new interpretation. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So in, in 451 AD, we have uh, what's known as the Chalcedon definition which simply says, uh, I say simply says, it's actually pretty, pretty lengthy. Um, yep. It says, therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time, of one substance with us as regards his manhood like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten, for us men and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us. So, summarize this for us, right? So, uh, talk to us about the two natures of Christ. 
and then I'm I just have a, a demon, not a PhD. So so help us understand here is is affirming the formula of Chalcedon necessary? Yeah. So all all that I mean the the phrase toward the end is really the key phrase in uh, the Chalcedonian definition. So Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And those natures exist in the one person of Jesus without mixture, without change, without division, and without separation. That is a, I mean, the Chalcedonian definition is really a beautiful piece of theology. And that one phrase right there is the summary of, you know, at that point, 130 years of theological reflection and really more than that, but since uh, Nicaea won, uh, 130 years of, of theological reflection, and then it, it actually produced another uh, 300 years of theological reflection on Christology. So it, it's a beautiful definition, um, and it, all it's really saying is Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. Uh, it breaks down what it means for Jesus to have divine nature, so that's the language of um, begotten of the Father before all worlds, the Son is fully God. He's of the same essence with the Father. Um, the the means by which the Son and the Father are the same but also distinct is that term begotten before all worlds. That's a reference to a, uh, a Nicene and uh, then Constantinopolitan doctrine of the eternal relations of origin, which those are all big terms, and we can come back to them if you want. Um, but that's just a restatement of what the church had already decided with Nicaea and then Constantinople 381. Um, and then the, the language about uh, Mary as the God bearer and him having a, a, a body and a rational soul. Uh, the body and rational soul bit is just saying he's truly human. He has a human body and a human soul. And then affirming Mary as the God bearer isn't saying anything specifically what we would consider Roman about Mary. It's actually just saying that Jesus is one person. And so when Mary bears him in his womb, in her womb, she is pregnant with the God-man, and so it's appropriate to call her God-bearer. And so if you walk through the different pieces of that definition, um, all that's happening is that Chalcedon is saying Jesus is one person. You can't separate him into two people, a human person and a divine person. Um, those, those two natures exist together in one person, but they don't mix together. They don't change into one another the human nature doesn't become divine. The divine nature doesn't stop being divine to become human. Um, so they're the same person. They're not separate people. But in being in being one person in two natures, those two natures don't mix together and change. That's that's also that's all that's really is go, really is really going on, and that's really important um, pastorally and theologically. It's vitally important theologically because it's affirming the biblical portrait of Jesus. Jesus is one person. He's not two people. He's fully divine. He's fully human. But it's also important pastorally because that allows us to, to say things like what the writer of Hebrews says. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Well, how is that possible? Well, he was fully human, but he's also fully human and fully divine at the same time. And so even as he's tempted as a human being, he's unable to sin. Um, and he doesn't sin as the God man, the divine person who's taken on human flesh. So the Chalcedonian definition is really this real, I mean, yeah, it's kind of a long paragraph, but if you start digging into any of those particular terms, 
it's a really beautiful statement that summarizes the Christian faith about who Jesus is. Awesome. Thank you. In something, something AD, sometime after Christ, sometime before today, the following was written. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Talk about those four words. We, we saw in a group that we're all in, uh, your, your discussion on the whole descended into hell that was affirmed by these later editions of the Apostles' Creed. Kind of walk us through that, your, your understanding of that. Yeah, so my, my basic definition of Christ's descent into hell, or I would prefer Christ's descent to the dead, because I think that avoids some of the confusion about hell. My basic definition is just that Jesus experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried, and his soul departed to the place of the dead. Because, because he was a righteous man and died uh, an innocent but substitutionary death, he goes not to the place called Gehenna or Hades or Sheol. He goes to paradise, the place for the righteous dead. Um, he's not tormented. He, he doesn't suffer anymore. It's not a continuation of his passion. It's actually the beginning of what's called his exaltation. Um, he, he's victorious. He enters death victoriously. He's already won at the cross, and his victory is about to be vindicated in the resurrection. And so all the descent at, its very, at a very basic level is saying is that Jesus, as the God-man, experienced death as all human beings do, body buried, soul to the place of the dead. And because he's also God, he does so victoriously, both because of the cross and because of the resurrection. There's a few other things that go along with that. Um, historically speaking, uh, the church also has said that along with 1 Peter 3, um, Jesus also proclaims his victory to the dead. And not, not as like a post-mortem gospel altar call, but as, hey, everybody, what's up? I win. Um, and, and that's, that's you know, gospel to the people who waited for him in faith, but it's impending judgment for those who didn't. So that's another aspect. And then the final aspect of it is that um, when he does rise from the dead, he actually um, leads a host of captives, to quote Ephesians 4, 9. He, he brings the righteous dead with him into what is now heaven because the resurrected Jesus is there. And so it's not, you know, there's all kinds of weird things that happen with the descent in the late medieval period and then in the modern period. Um, but a, a very basic definition is just he died like all humans do. As the God-man, he was victorious. He proclaimed his victory, and he brought the righteous dead with him when he resurrected from the dead. So that's the that's the gist of it. Um, we can get into some of those you know problems with it that people have, but that's the basic definition I would give. Sweet. Um, now you are an executive director for the Center of Baptist Renewal. So, so share with us and, and our listeners just a little bit about what that is and, and what uh, really what that organization seeks to accomplish. Yeah, so we are a group of Southern Baptists who 
want to connect Baptist pastors and lay people and professors, just Baptists in general, we want to connect Baptists to the Christian tradition. Uh, we want to help churches, pastors, professors, laypersons. We want to help them resource the Christian tradition. And what by resource, I mean help them find resources that will help them in their ministry, in their teaching, in their understanding of doctrine, in their spiritual life. Uh, and so, you know, we, we have posts on there about historic Christian practices, how to incorporate those into worship services. We have explanations of ancient doctrines. We have quotes from various people in church history. Uh, but it's not, you know, it is retrieving the whole Christian tradition. But we also want to particularly retrieve the Baptist tradition for Baptists. So um, w- we emphasize what early Baptists said and believed. And I don't, and I'm going to go ahead and clarify this. I don't mean by we, we retrieve early Baptists. I don't mean that we enter into were early Baptist Calvinists or not debates. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, what did they say about the Chalcedonian definition that we just talked about? What do they say about baptism? What do they say about Lord's Supper? What do they say about worship? You know, so um, we're trying to connect Baptists to early Baptists in a, in a way that's not trying to get at some kind of intramural denominational debate. We just want people to know what early Baptists said, whether they're general Baptists or particular Baptists or Sandy Creek Baptists or whatever. We just want people to know what early Baptists said. So um, that's, that's the, the sort of mission and vision of the center. Okay, and I think that kind of answers or, or leads into this last question. Tell the pastors tuning in why Baptist history, our tradition, is so important to know, even as we serve here in 2019. For those who are like, well, that's 400 and whatever AD, you know, I'm worried about, you know, so-and-so with her hangnail or whatever right now. That that doesn't affect me. What, what would you say to those guys? Yeah, you know, church history does a few things for us. Um, it helps us to feel the weight of the communion of the saints. Um, so pastoral ministry, I'm, I'm an ordained Baptist pastor as well, and I uh, work as a bivocational pastor in our church. Um, pastoral ministry is lonely. You guys know that. Uh, and, and so church history and understanding church history, um, it's not the exact same as an embodied person being alongside of you, but you feel the weight that you are sitting in and in, in the line with the communion of the saints, and specifically the communion of saints, the part of the communion of saints that's pastor to the people for 2,000 years. The, the people who are writing these theology texts and the people who are writing these scriptural comments, they were pastors by and large. I mean, there's there are isolated few who weren't pastors, but these are all pastors. So, um, you know, it, it, it helps with loneliness in pastoral ministry, I think. Uh, it also, they also have lots to say about pastoral problems. These, these guys and, and the, the women that are also writing, they weren't writing in, in isolation. Um, they were writing because they were encountering, encountering pastoral problems. I mean, I remember in my church that I served in North Carolina, uh, we had a member of our church after a Wednesday night Bible study on the incarnation come up and argue with us that Jesus wasn't fully God. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, who can help me answer these questions that this guy has? How about Athanasius and Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea? They, they dealt with those same questions that this man came to us with. And well, maybe more like statements that he came with, but anyway, uh, you know, these guys were dealing with pastoral problems and not just theological problems. They were dealing with problems about 
wealth and poverty. They were dealing with problems uh, about um, sexual purity. So, you know, it's just it, it's standing in line with pastors who have gone before us. Um, and it also helps us. I, I guess the final thing I would say is it also helps us um, stay on the right path. And by on the right path, I mean the path of doctrinal and pastoral fidelity. These are brothers and, and sisters um, that have written theological texts that have stood the test of time. They've articulated things that we need to articulate, and um, they can help be a guide to us to avoid that situation where, you know, we read a passage or we read a doctrinal statement, and on our own individual basis, we may not understand it. But they come alongside of us as guides and helps and brothers and sisters to help us understand how to articulate theology and how to understand the Bible. So I think those are all really important. And that, that's not to say that only do it and other people in our lives can't but it's it's all together we're doing this all together both those people who are living at the same time as us and we're talking together with but also in the communion of the saints that's existing throughout space and time that's incredible um all right it's it's almost time to hop off the train um but but first i came across something on the on the baptist renewal website and um it says that you are working on a volume on baptist catholicism Catholicity, is that, did I say that right? <laughs> Catholicity, yeah. Okay. So, Try that again, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me, let, me, let me do that. Catholicity. You better okay. leave that in this That's episode, I, man. I know. I'm, no, I'm, I'm cutting that part out. No, we'll you're do not. that again. No, so, you're not. <laughs> okay. So it's about time to hop off the train. Uh, but on the, on the Baptist uh, Renewal website, we came across that you are working on a volume uh, on Baptist Catholicity. So tell us uh, what that is and where we can, where and when we can find the book. Yeah, so uh, Catholicity, so there, in the uh, Nicene Creed, there are four marks of the church or four notes of the church. Uh, the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And um, so Catholicity is not a reference to Roman Catholicism. Catholicity means universal. Uh, and so Catholicity is the attempt to see our own churches as a part of the larger universal church. And, and in that volume, it's coming out with B&H, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. It will uh, be out by SBC 2020. Awesome. Uh, so that is an edited volume. Uh, we're trying to show how Baptists are a part of the larger Christian tradition. And we have contributors uh, from Southwestern, uh, Malcolm Yarnell and Madison Grace. I hope I'm not going to forget anybody. So it's dangerous for me to do. But uh, we have we have contributors from Southwestern, Malcolm Yarnell, Madison Grace uh, from New Orleans, Ryan Putman um, from Anderson University, Luke Stamps from Southern Seminary, uh, Michael Haken from Trinity International University, Taylor Worley and David Dockery uh, from Oklahoma Baptist University, myself, uh, from Western Seminary, Patrick Schreiner, from Southeastern Seminary, Amy Whitfield and Walter Strickland, um, from Gateway Seminary, Kristen Ferguson, uh, from Beeson Divinity School, Timothy George, from and then we have a response from uh, uh, Steve Harmon, who 
is from sort of a, a post-liberal perspective, but has written a lot about Baptist Catholicity. He's responding, and I'm sure there are people I've left out, and I'm sorry, but uh, I wanted to I wanted to mention those names and specifically the institutions they're in because this book is not for one tribe of Southern Baptists or another tribe of Southern Baptists. We believe this book is for all Southern Baptists and for all just all Baptists in general to try to help us connect to uh, the Christian tradition, to see how Southern Baptists, not just Calvinist Southern Baptists, not just Arminian Southern Baptists, not just, or not Arminian, um, not just, not just traditionalist Southern Baptists, um, not just, you know, attractive, uh, attractional model Southern Baptists, not just attractive Southern Baptists either. Um, <laughs> you know, not, not just, uh, Nine Mark Southern Baptists, all Southern Baptists can benefit from this book and see how we're all part of the larger Christian tradition. So I'm trying to, I'm like, as I'm trying to say all these descriptors, I'm also trying to think through my head, who have I left out of this list? Oh, <laughs> Sujin Chung from California Baptist University, Chris Morgan from California Baptist University. So, uh, I mean, we've got, we've got people from Baptist universities, from all the Baptist seminaries, uh, Jason Dusing from Midwestern Seminary. It's an important one. So, I mean, we've got one from every Southern Baptist seminary. We've got from Baptist colleges, Dustin Bruce, who's now at Boyce. I mean, so, yep, this is for I think what I, I think what I heard was an announcement, Kyle, that he is launching the, the, the four marks of the church network. I think that's what I just heard. Like, forget <laughs> nine marks. We're going to simplify this. You know, he took like Tom Rainer, Simple Church or whatever. We're, we're going with four, baby. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Right. We don't need nine. We need four. Yeah, that's right. Well, that that sounds like that sounds like it's exciting, and uh, and that'll be we'll be looking forward to that book. Yeah, um, I, I I attempt to read a couple of academic things, um, and then quickly realize why I don't read academic stuff very often. <laughs> but uh, it goes back to the Johnny Cash bio. Yeah, that's yes, I do. Yeah, I'll read that again for the fourteenth time. So, <laughs> there you go. all right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for for being with us today, um, and we're also grateful that you've taken the time to listen in. And if you haven't, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. You can also visit us online at notanotherbaptistpodcast.com or on Facebook under Not Another Baptist Podcast or on Twitter at NAB underscore podcast. And not Dr. Matt, you get to send us out. Until next time, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as Matt Emerson's beard. Have a great day and God bless. (laughs) 